as Jessica mentioned, I um, went to college across the street, uh, and I grew up Baptist. And I did not have any family connections or church connections to Asbury whatsoever. I found it in a catalog. Uh, decided that it looked nice and that I should come and visit, and so I did. And that's how I first got to Wilmore. Um, never in a million years did I ever think that I would ever be back, <laughs> pastor of Wilmore United Methodist Church. Um, but it was in being at the college across the street that I think I first sang, And Can It Be? Because growing up Baptist, we didn't sing that. We sang a lot of Fanny Crosby and Isaac Watts. But I don't think we ever sang that growing up, or at least I don't remember it. So I remember, you know, we were singing, you know, we had sung it in, uh, in, at the college chapel several times. And um, throughout my growing up years, there were stints when my dad would serve as the minister of music or would lead the singing at our home church. And so I went home and I said, Dad, why have we never sung And Can It Be? Because I had opened our Baptist hymnal and I, it's, a, it's in there. It was, it was in there. And he was like, I don't know. That's a good question. And so not too long after that, my dad happened to be leading the hymns at our church. And he said, many of you know that Dee is away at college. And he, asked, he came home and asked me, why we don't sing this hymn? And can it be? It's in our hymnal. And it was written by Charles Wesley, who helped to start the Methodist movement. But it's a great hymn. <laughs> and we should sing this more. So we're going to sing that. And so we all stood and we sang, Ain't Can It Be? And one of the little jokes that my dad has whenever he leads the hymns is every hymn is one of his favorites. Because he would say, would you stand and sing, you know, whatever it is, holy, holy, holy. And it's one of my favorites. And so I like to think that Ain't Can It Be is now one of his favorites. It is certainly one of mine. So I'm very thankful the choir shared that today. In 2004, my wife and I, uh, we had just gotten married. We moved back to Wilmore so that we could attend seminary. Um, again, uh, when I graduated from the college, I did not at that time know that I was going to go into ministry. And when I started looking at seminaries, I looked around. I thought, well, I need something different. I should probably go somewhere that's not familiar. So I applied to several different places. I was still kind of riding the Baptist Methodist fence a little bit. I had grown up Baptist my whole life, and I knew that I wasn't quite Baptist anymore. But I had this denominational identity that I just couldn't shake. And so we came on an official visit. We came here to the seminary to do an official visit. Oddly enough, when you were across the street, you hardly ever come over here. So I really didn't know anything about the seminary other than the John Wesley statue because we used to play Frisbee golf and he was one of the holes. <laughs> so we came for an official visit and during our visit we had a prayer time over here in, in the prayer chapel with JD who was um, the dean of the chapel at the time. And I just remember having a sense while we were praying in that chapel that we were supposed to come back to Wilmore. And I was like, are you sure? Because we could go somewhere different. Like, it'd be okay. I've already done Wilmore before. And so we ended up back in Wilmore. We only ended up spending two years here. Um, I got about half of my degree done before Jesus called us to go to Mississippi. Um, a position had opened up at a Wesley Foundation, one that we were familiar with that I had applied for. I felt God calling me into campus ministry. And so with half a degree and really no experience, they hired me anyway. 
and my wife at the same time, showing that how God really can bring things together. She had received a full fellowship to pursue her PhD there at the university. And so um, together we, we moved down. We were, there for, we were there in Oxford at the University of Mississippi for four years. And it was a very, very busy four years. I was finishing my MDiv through online classes and intensives, oftentimes uh, driving up here in the summers to, to get a class in and taking online classes while being in ministry with the students there on that campus. My wife started her PhD work, and in those four years, she completed her coursework, she completed her comprehensive exams, and also we happened to have our two boys. So guys, words to the wise, don't ever complain about how hard seminary is to your female colleagues, especially those that might be pregnant or have families. That will not end well. <laughs> so it was a really busy four years, and when I look back on it, I sometimes still wonder how we made it through. It was, we had more going on than we should have ever had going on. We were still newlyweds, in a sense. We were, our family was growing, we were in brand new positions and transitions and, and all of this kinds of things. And really, we should not have, have made it out as, as well as we did, except for the fact that the very semester, summer and semester that we moved there, a new Methodist church was being planted in the community. And we got connected to them very quickly. And we were part of the original small group for that church. And that small group met every week. And we, even though we had so many other things going on, we made a point to always go to that small group. And by having that community and by having those friendships that grew out of that small group, that's really how we made it through those four years, by having that group of people around us. One of the things that I really appreciate about Jesus' ministry is that he too kept people around him. Almost from the moment of his baptism, he is calling disciples to follow him, calling people to gather around him and to come along with him as he goes about his ministry, his preaching and his teaching and his healing. And so for three plus years, they do so. They go with him. We know of at least 12, but there were probably more that hung around and were always kind of present around him. And so he goes throughout the region, traversing the countryside, preaching and teaching and healing. And these people are always with him. These disciples, these followers are with him all the time. Yes, he took time away. He took space, which they didn't always seem to understand because they would always come and look for him. But he took space and time out to get away, but he always went back. And so today, as we are in Holy Week, and as we come to this section of John's Gospel, we remember that Jesus now is in the last days with this group of people that he has spent the last three years with. John's Gospel chooses to give us a different look at Holy Week. The other Gospels give us parables. They give us different interactions that take place around the temple. But John doesn't really do that. In fact, this week as I was reading and studying this passage, I came to a place where I thought, why in the world did I choose John? Because John is just weird. It just is. John gives us a completely different look at Holy Week because we have the foot washing. We have Jesus who speaks of his betrayal. We have him speaking to um, predicting Peter's denial. And then after that, if you have a red-letter Bible... From there until the end of chapter 17, about 99% of it is read. 
And we call that his last discourses. Because there are these long stretches of teaching, these long stretches of these discourses that Jesus gives, kind of sharing with us his heart. And there's loftier language and there's this kind of theological meat there that we often want to kind of get in there and dissect. But we also have to remember that this is Holy Week, that he is in the midst of his passion, that he is spending time with people that he has spent the last three years with, that he's in the last days and hours of being with these followers. And so while we call these discourses, they are far more than that. Jesus is not just giving us theological meat to dissect in seminary class. He is sharing his very heart. He is sharing who he is. He is sharing his relationship to the Father and his relationship to the Holy Spirit. And he is sharing who these people that he is with, he is sharing who they are to him during this time. And so as we read through them, it's easier, it's easy to get caught up in the language and it's easy to get caught up in some of the theology that is embedded in here. But ultimately, Jesus is sharing his heart with these followers. And so in chapter 15, as we start that chapter, we have one of the great I am statements of the Gospel of John. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener or the vineyard keeper. And so Jesus begins to capture one of the great tensions of the Christian life and really of ministry life. Because in talking about what it means to remain or to abide in the vine, to remain and abide in him, but also to remain and abide so that we might bear much fruit, Jesus is capturing the tension of being versus doing. That we must remain, that we must abide. A word that appears throughout the gospel, this minno, this Greek word minno, but it appears ten times alone in this chapter. He desperately wants them to abide and to remain in him, but not just for the sake of abiding, not just for the sake of remaining, but so that they might bear fruit. The tension of being, abiding, and doing, and bearing fruit. I spent nine years in campus ministry. Nine years of spending my time with college students of summers that were a little more laid back, but always in preparation for what was to come. The falls were times when everything would ramp up and we were doing all that we could to put our best foot forward so that students would would show up and maybe want to come be a part of our ministry. But every single year of those nine years of ministry, I struggled with the question of being versus doing in the life of our ministry. Because inevitably, somebody would always bring up, well, why don't we do a giveaway? Why don't we say that everybody who comes the first week or the first couple of weeks, they get their name entered in and we'll give them an iPad or an iPod or whatever was popular that year. And I would just always hmm and haw, and I'm a little non-confrontational. I don't like telling people to their face that they're wrong. But I would mull over this because to me, we were sacrificing a part of who we were for the short-term result of trying to get a few more people in the seats. And I can never pull the trigger. I would always find a way to say, you know what? I don't know that we need to do that. Why don't we focus instead on this? And why don't we focus instead on this? Because being is a long-term game. Being 
in the long term means that you are building something that you believe doesn't require iPads in order for people to show up. And so I would always struggle with that being versus doing, with remaining and abiding in who we were and who we were in Jesus, with trying to bear fruit, with wanting the students to show up. Because the thing about campus ministry that's different from the local church, which I'm discovering, is that, you know, campus ministry takes the summer off. (laughs) And every August, I would say, man, I really hope they show up. Like, I really wondered, I was like, what if they just don't come back this year? (laughs) Because we gave them three months off. Tell me, give me any other pastor that is willing to let their congregation have three months off and hope that they would show up again. It would be scary, but that's what we would do. And I, we, I desperately wanted not our, I didn't, I wanted, excuse me, I wanted, I didn't want to get into the trap of our means justifying the ends. It's the being versus the doing. And Jesus captures that as he talks about this vine and the branches and this remaining and this bearing much fruit and that he wants them to remain and abide in his love. And it's not just in him, but it is in his love. So much so that eventually we get down to verse 12, where he says, this is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. This is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. This is a repeat. This is word for word from what is in chapter 13, verse 34, just a couple of hours, just a couple of chapters before this, but it is so important to Jesus that he repeats it here. As they remain in his love, he wants them to know that it is not just about remaining in this love. It is not just about realizing that you are loved, but is that you love each other just as I have loved you. Again, in the other gospels, we have the greatest command and the one that is like it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But in John, the love command takes a new shape. John reframes this love command because Jesus embodies now the steadfast love of God. The Shema was this response to the hesed, to the steadfast love of God that said, yes, Lord, we realize that you love us and we will love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, our strength, and we will love our neighbor as ourselves." And now Jesus embodies that steadfast love. And so John reframes the love command so that Jesus says, love each other just as I have loved you. Because I embody the very love that has been extended to you since the covenant was made. I embody the love that you are now to embody to one another. And no one has greater love than this. And this is always great. So when we have a statement like this, we can say, oh, great. Jesus is going to tell us exactly what this means. Because in John, Jesus doesn't always tell us what things mean. So it's always nice when we maybe get a little glimpse, when we get an illustration, when we get a way to make the rubber meet the road. And so he says, no one has greater love than this, than to give up one's life for one's friends. He has already been talking about his death. He has already been trying to prepare them for what is to come. And we realize when we read through that that they don't fully get it yet, that they don't really fully understand what's coming 
But he still says, no one has greater love than the one who gives up his life for his friends. And what he does here is not only does he show them the way by telling him that it means to lay down your own life, but it's to do it for your friends. Until this moment, Jesus had never called them friends. And we could see this and we could say, well, maybe it's just, he's just in the moment and maybe he just chooses this time to use this particular word or maybe this is John just trying to mix up the Greek you know, to use something different. But it's a very intentional use of the word friends. Here in these last hours and days before he's to be betrayed and arrested, Jesus, among those that he cares for and that he has spent so much time with, now says that they are his friends. And I do not think it was lost on them. I do not think that they sat there and said, oh, that was nice. He just called us friends. I think in that moment, it drops like a bomb. And they're like, what did he just say? Because the very next thing he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends because you do what I command. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my father, I have made known to you. He calls them friends. They are not servants. They are not clueless about what is going on in the world and in how God is working in the world. They are friends. And by calling them friends, Jesus is communicating to them that he has truly shared with them his heart. That he has truly shared with him everything that he is about and everything that is about to happen. That he has opened up the doors of intimacy so that they might fully understand who he is and how God loves them and how they can remain in that love. In the Greco-Roman world, friendship was an ideal that was often written about and talked about. Um, friendship, we, we still talk about friendship. We still write about friendship and what is true friendship, you know. And sometimes you're not really friends with somebody these days until you're Facebook friends um, with them. But in the Greco-Roman world, they had ideals about friendship. They had ideas about friendship, what friendship really was. And they were often characterized by loyalty, intimacy, and sharing. And we can see that those things are true here. That in John's account of what Jesus is sharing with his disciples, that there is this sense of loyalty, that there is an intimacy that is being cast here, and that there is a sharing, a sharing of Jesus' heart with others. And as, and as later as the church would grow, other spiritual writers would begin to share their thoughts about friendship. And one of those was Aylred. He was abbot of Riveau in the 12th century. And he wrote a little book called Spiritual Friendship. And he wrote it in the style of a dialogue between a teacher and a student. And it's a great little read. It's in the library. Um, although not right now because I checked it out. <laughs> but it's a great little read because in that, Aylred crafts a conversation between himself as the teacher and Evo as the student. And Evo wants to know what the nature of friendship is. He is curious about what is friendship and, and can friendship exist outside of the faith? Can friendship exist outside of what we would, of, of our Christian faith? 
And so Elred goes on to talk about the nature of friendship, and he talks about a couple of different kinds of friendship that are not spiritual friendship, one being a carnal friendship, a friendship that means to enjoy whatever one lusts after and believe that to be the blessedness. In other words, to allow our hearts to kind of go after whatever it is that we lust after, whatever it is that we desire, only for desire's sake, and to believe that in satisfying that desire that that is being in a state of blessedness. That is carnal friendship. And then he distinguishes that between worldly friendship. Worldly friendship being rooted in a desire for seeking one's own advantage. Meaning that I only become friends with you because of what I might get out of it. I only befriend you, I only talk to you because I hope that in befriending you, that something good will come out of it for me. That is worldly friendship. And so Evo says, well, of those if that is carnal friendship, and if that is worldly friendship, then what is true friendship? What is spiritual friendship? To which Elred says, Once the Lord in the gospel says, I have appointed you that you should go and should bring forth fruit. That is, that you should love one another. For true friendship advances by perfecting itself, and the fruit is derived from feeling the sweetness of that perfection. And so spiritual friendship among the just is born of a similarity in life, morals, and pursuits. That is, it is a mutual conformity in matters, human and divine, united with benevolence and charity. Isn't that beautiful? For true friendship advances by perfecting itself. That true friendship does not seek our own advantage. It does not seek to satisfy some lustful desire, but that it is true because it exists to perfect itself. And as it perfects itself, there is a mutual conformity in matters human and divine. It's a beautiful picture of friendship. One of the, as I mentioned, one of the reasons that we made it through those four crazy years in Mississippi was because we had a small group. And eventually that original small group broke up so there could be more small group. It's as the church began to worship and more people became a part of the church and wanted to be in small groups. And so for much of the time that we were there, a small group was hosted at our home. Part of that was because we had the space. We lived in a pretty um, spacious parsonage. But also because we were the only ones with kids. And when you're the only ones with kids, you kind of get to call the shots. And say, well, we're going to have it at our house so that we can still have small group. And then one of us can put the baby down when it's time for him to go to sleep. And so over the course of those years, we had small group together in our home, and we would gather for dinner, and we would um, gather around the couches and, and talk about that week's sermon or go through a study together. And one of our dear friends became a part of that small group. We knew him from our previous time in Mississippi, but his name was Matthew, and he started leading worship at our church, and he became a part of our small group. And Matthew is unlike anybody else that you will ever meet. Certainly unlike us. I have my master's degree, my wife has her PhD. Matthew got so frustrated kind of with the system of organized school that he didn't even finish college. But he's probably one of the most learned and read people that I know because he just loves to learn and he loves to read. And he would come to our small group and he would participate and he would help build the community that we had there. But the one thing that kind of perfected our friendship over those years was not how he participated in the discussions, 
But it was after it was all over, week after week, we would go to the kitchen and wash dishes together. Because every week we ate dinner. And every week there were dishes to do. And every week Matthew would go to the sink and he would start washing dishes. And while he was washing and I was drying the dishes and putting them away, we would continue really to have small group. He and I just talking, just reflecting on what we had talked about, reflecting on life. He became one of those friends that he's not just one of our friends, one of Corey and I's friends, but he's a family friend. When we talk about Matthew in our house, our kids know who he is. When he comes over to visit us, they climb in his lap and want him to read books to them. He's one of those types of friends. It's a true friendship. It's a friendship that's been perfecting itself. It's a friendship that truly takes shape in a mutual conformity in matters human and divine. And friendships can be perfecting themselves in all kinds of ways. We all have those friendships. They don't have to just be perfected in small groups or in accountability groups or in one-on-one interactions at Solomon's porch. They can be perfected in whatever that we are doing. Later, we would move to Macon, Georgia, where I continued in campus ministry. And I'm a runner. I enjoy running. It's for my physical health, but it's also for my mental health. Just to be able to go out and run and let my mind just do whatever it needs to do. But it's also part of my social health, being able to find other people who enjoy running and being able to to commit with them to running. This morning, I got up at 5 o'clock, and I probably should have been doing some more preparation on this sermon. But instead, I met three other guys at 5.30, and we ran 5.3 miles together because that is a part of perfecting friendship. And when we were in Macon, I had another friend that we would meet at 4, 5, 6 a.m. sometimes to run together. And we always knew that if the other one was getting up, we would get up and run. And we ran hundreds of miles together. And that's not an exaggeration. We trained for two marathons together. It is no exaggeration that we literally probably ran hundreds of miles together. And over those miles, we would talk about life. We would talk about our families. We would talk about our faith. He grew up in the church, but then went away from the church and then came back once they had kids. His wife had grown up Mormon, and so he had all kinds of questions sometimes. If we were going up a hill or we knew we had a lot of miles in front of us, he would ask me a question just to get me talking for the next four or five miles, (laughs) trying to clarify some issue. Our friendship was perfected in all of those miles, so much so that one day we were going to run 10 miles together. And he's a triathlete, so he needed to bike first, and then we were going to run. And so I set my alarm, I woke up, and when I woke up, it was pouring down rain outside, pouring. There was no text message on my phone. I was like, he is riding in the rain, and he's going to run too, whether I'm there or not. So I drug myself out of bed, I got dressed, I went to his house, and sure enough, in the pouring down rain, he pulls up on his bike, and he says, you came! Well, of course I came. You're out there riding. I can't let you not run alone. And and on that day, I would say, greater love has no man than this, that he, you know, wakes up at 6 o'clock in the morning to run 10 miles in the rain with his friend (laughs) in the pouring down rain the whole time. But that is a friendship that has been perfected. That is a friendship that is being perfected through all the miles, 
And now we don't even live in the same place, and yet we still talk about our running. We still talk about our families. Jesus has this kind of friendship with the disciples. He calls them friends, not just to make them feel better about themselves, not because it satisfies some carnal desire that he has, not because it meets some advantage for himself. He calls them friends because over the course of the last three years, a true conformity in matters human and divine have taken place. And maybe they don't fully understand it, but it exists. And by calling them friends, he begins to open up this new way of relating to himself, of relating to the Father, and relating to the Holy Spirit. Reminding them that yes, they are friends. And they are friends, not because they chose him, but because he chose them. And he will appoint them now so that they can go and produce fruit. And it is in being friends that they can now go and do and produce the fruit. The fruit that comes with loving one another. When I was thinking about Holy Week and thinking about what to preach for today, I was thinking about this passage and my mind turned to a headstone that I had seen recently. My wife's family lives close to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. You may not know this, but Winston-Salem is actually the merger of two different places, Winston and Salem. Salem is Old Salem. It is the settlement settled by the Moravians in the early 18th century. It's the same Moravians that we Wesleyans and Methodists like to talk about from time to time the ones who had such an influence on Wesley himself. And so, as now a true Wesleyan and Methodist, I love going to Old Salem. I love seeing the historic buildings that have been, um, that have been restored. But most of all, I love walking through their cemetery. There's a picture. Here's a picture of the cemetery at Old Salem. And you will notice that all the headstones are just alike. They're all the same size. They're all the same you know, dimensions. No one is higher than the other, so that no one person in the community takes precedence over anybody else, even in death. And you can just walk and walk and walk through these headstones. And the best part about them are the epitaphs. They're beautiful verses, sometimes verses of hymns, sometimes verses of scripture, and sometimes like this one, Roy D. Holder, which says, blessed is he that has the gift of making friends. For that is the gift of God. Over Christmas, we walked by this one and I snapped a picture of it because I thought, what kind of person was Roy? What kind of person was he that upon his death, this is what they put on his epitaph. This is what they put on his headstone. I think he was the type of person who valued intimacy. I think he was the type of person who could get people to talk about themselves. I think he was the type of person who was also not afraid to share his own life with others. I think he was the type of person who strove to perfect friendships with other people. He was the type of person so that when he died, they said, blessed is the one who has the gift of making friends. For that is the gift of God. Jesus, too, gives us that gift. In his last days, he reminds us he reminds the disciples and he reminds us that we are his friends and that no one has greater love than the 
one who lays down his life for, for his friends. May we all receive that gift and make friends. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus' friends. We thank you that he had people around him in his last days and hours that he could share his heart with. And this holy week, let us not forget the place that he has given us. Let us not forget that he has chosen us and that he appoints us to go and bear much fruit because we are his friends. Shape us and mold us, Lord. Help us to be able to have that mutual conformity in all matters human and divine. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.